Let's get back to our normal routine, and we'll turn now to 1 Timothy 3. And we're continuing and almost finished with our series on the church's shepherds. And so just to be reminded of this central core text, 1 Timothy 3, let's read 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping all dig- with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's take just a moment and pray together. Our Father, this is uh, such clear guidance for the leadership of Christ's church, and we would ask you, Lord, to help us to understand as fully as is possible what the church is to be, and, and it begins really with godly leadership and flows down from there. And so I pray, Lord, that you would that you would encourage and edify all of our hearts to understand the bride of Christ and how we are to function and how we are to be the high calling, Lord, of shepherding and how important it is that a, a church without qualified shepherds is, is really just under a horrible cloud and a shadow and really not in a full sense the church. And so I pray that our time this morning, Lord, would be pleasing to you and useful to us as your children, as your church. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, last week I reminded you that we took significant time, or last time rather, we took significant time, about uh, 12 messages to be exact, to build as thorough a theology of shepherding in the church as we possibly could, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've been saying that once we finally get to the qualifications of a shepherd here in 1 Timothy 3, they should now seem intuitive, they should seem obvious, it should seem totally clear. And I think we've seen that. We began last time, if you recall, rather than just going through the list of qualifications, we've categorized these into seven categories. Last time we looked at the first category, a sacrificial desire. And we saw that the sacrificial desire consisted of the fact that this is a fine work he desires to do, from verse 1, that he's not a recent convert, from verse 6, and that he's above reproach, meaning that there's no skeletons in his closet. There is a sacrificial desire. He lives a life worth emulating. In the second category we looked at, we called a God-honoring home. That he is dedicated as a, as a family man. If he, is a, if he is a married man, he's a husband of one wife. He's devoted to one woman and he is enamored with her and her alone for a lifetime. And he manages his household well. He keeps his children under control. And then the third category we looked at, we called a long-range perspective. The long-range perspective was expressed by the fact that uh, problems often stem in leadership from wanting things perfect now, wanting uh, things to be exactly right at this moment. 
Now, there are crisis moments, we pointed out, in which leadership has to be exerted, but faithfulness over time is what will eventually bear the most fruit. And so we said that this can't be a man who is, who is violent. He must be gentle, meaning that he, he doesn't push to get everything his way all the time. And he's not quarrelsome. He's not a guy that you're fearful is going to lose his temper. He's not a guy you're fearful is going to blow his stack. We did note that this doesn't mean that we can't have courage to confront sin or to, to take a stand. Neither does it mean that we avoid all conflict at all costs. In fact, a good leader in the church might need to initiate conflict if there is sin. But primarily, he is to be faithful, to be patient, not quarrelsome, so that he has a long-range perspective. And so today we'll do three more qualifications. Again, they will seem intuitive to you. They'll seem obvious if you've been here for the previous 13 messages. And next time we'll end with one final category that I'd like to devote an entire message to. But our fourth category today, we'll just continue right on, we'll call an inclusive love. An inclusive love. The great pastor of the church at Smyrna in the second century, Polycarp, He received a letter from his spiritual hero and mentor, Ignatius of Antioch. And the letter contained some great encouragements to Polycarp, but it also contained some helpful critiques. And one of the critiques that Ignatius gave to Polycarp was that Polycarp tended to love the obedient believers to the exclusion of the disobedient. That he didn't want to deal with the difficult sheep. He didn't want to deal with the sheep that are a little smellier, that are a little more difficult to to handle. We don't know why. Maybe it was a fear of confrontation. Maybe it was just simply a lack of knowledge as to how to shepherd the wayward believer. We don't know that. But in any case, Polycarp was reminded that the shepherds of the church are to love all the sheep and not be selective in the way they do this. And under the category of an inclusive love, we would place two qualifications. The first qualification The qualified shepherd is to be, verse 2, hospitable. Hospitable. Now, we have to undo some popular teaching about being hospitable because it is in error to a a certain degree. The most common immediate application I've heard and read about being hospitable goes something like this. The pastor's home should be an open door. Anyone should be able to go to the pastor's home anytime they want. Or maybe the pastor should be having church members in his home all the time. That interpretation, in fact, is one of the reasons for the tradition in many, uh, in many denominations of the parsonage, the pastor's home on the church property, because it's so much more convenient to just go next door than to have to go across town. But this, of course, assumes that the vocational shepherds, the paid pastors, are the ones solely responsible for being hospitable. So we have to get rid of that interpretation already because we've already seen that the church is made up of both vocational and volunteer elders. And yes, shepherding uh, people into our home, my home as a pastor, other pastors, that's, that's a good idea. That's a great idea. Our home is often the site of gatherings. We do this as often as we can. But this is actually an anachronistic cultural interpretation of this idea. Now, anachronistic, that's a big word that means that something is applied from the wrong time period. Just to illustrate what this means, and just to give me the excuse to do something that is very humorous to me, there are two infamous, absolutely infamous anachronisms that have been polluting pulpits in churches for years now. None of them have 
uh, cause the eternal damnation of anybody, but they are in error. Here are the two most infamous ones, and you've probably heard this preached. The Greek word dunamis, it means power, and from it we get our word dynamite. Professors of Greek have threatened to haunt their seminary students from the grave if they ever preach, as so many of them have, that Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that he wants the power of Christ's resurrection. We get the word dynamite from the word power. Paul wants explosive power. Well, that's nice, but Paul wrote that 1,800 years before dynamite was invented. Even just me saying that in jest, Greek scholars from heaven are preparing lightning bolts at this very moment. That's an anachronism. Or how about this one, the other most infamous one? Jesus said in Luke 18, 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A popular interpretation, especially by prosperity gospel preachers, is that Jesus is actually saying it's quite possible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven since the eye of the needle actually refers to short doorways cut into the wall of Jerusalem whereby a traveler could lead his camel to kneel down and scoot through the miniature gateway without having to open the big massive gates in the middle of the night. And this is true. The wall of Jerusalem did have a gate called the eye of the needle, perhaps more than one, and they were added 700 years after the time of Christ. That's an anachronism. Similarly, to say hospitable means have people in your home, that's a nice idea. It's a good idea, but it's an anachronistic use. It's in the wrong time period. As a matter of fact, this would disqualify Paul because he was never home. The closest we see in Scripture to him being so-called hospitable is when he was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest in the rented house, and the only way he could see anybody is if they came to see him. That was the only way. And that's a nice use, and it's, there's a, that's a legitimate application. But the true meaning is infinitely more eternal and much more important. Hospitable is a word which means a lover of strangers or a friend to strangers. Peter uses the same word to command all of us in the church. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, don't treat some as more important than others. Or put it in terms we can understand, stop having cliques in the church where you're constantly only with a select few. And so there's some significant applications to the qualification of being hospitable, of being a lover of strangers or a a lover of a friend to strangers as a shepherd. Let me give you a few applications to this. The elder in the church should have a love for the lost. He should have a love for the lost. That's the greatest stranger to the church is the unsaved person. The unsaved person coming within our midst can't be treated as if they're unwelcome. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to do the work of an evangelist. This is in the context of the preached word of God. In other words, include the gospel. Don't be one of those churches that just turns into a glorified Bible study that never proclaims Christ to the lost. Every one of you should trust that your shepherds, whoever is in this pulpit, will be presenting Christ and you can bring your lost friends here because your shepherds love the lost. They are a friend to strangers. An elder who's lost his concern for the unbeliever is being inhospitable. Here's another application. We could 
say he should have a care for new attendees. He should have a care for new attendees. We never want to become Church of the Living Glacier. And our motto is, we're the church of the bold and the cold. Well, we don't want that. It's not, it's not good. The church leader who looks with disdain at guests or new attendees, make no mistake, is on a power trip. And I'll tell you why. Because every new person now is seen as a threat to my little kingdom. And that's not okay. And you might think, oh, that would never happen. It does happen. It has happened. A love for the lost, to care for new attendees. How about this application to being a friend of strangers? Avoiding a higher level group. Avoiding a higher level group. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us. We are on equal plane at the, at the foot of the cross. We don't believe in the concept of the clergy that are way up here and then everybody else, all you poor slob members. We are all servants of Christ who fulfill different functions. Some fulfill the function of leaders, others uh, doing other things. And yes, every leader has more inner circles when it comes to leadership in the church. Uh, For example, for me personally, I just naturally spend much more time with our leaders in the same way that Jesus spent more time with Peter, James, and John than he did the other nine apostles. But never, ever should a leader identify a few in the church that are qualitatively more important That's discouraging to the church because they see a clique that they can't be a part of ever. What's the definition of a clique? A clique is a group in the church run by a power person or a power family. And depending on how you behave to suit their qualifications, you're either in or you're out. That is a sign of an unhealthy church. We're called to shepherd all of the church. We're all brothers and sisters. And yes, we all spend time with more people than we do with others. But qualitatively, we're all equal. Another application to being a friend to strangers, avoiding idolizing the church in your own image. Avoiding idolizing the church in your own image. Phrases like, I wish things would never change. Or, I miss when our church was such and such. I miss when we were like this. Unless you're saying, I miss when we proclaim the gospel. Okay, that's a good thing to to miss. But that basically says, I wish all the people who have come recently and all the people who have gotten saved and need discipling would just stop ruining my idolatrous view of what I want my church to be. The church, by its very nature, changes, and it should be. Anybody who stands up in their church and says, I'm so glad that we have exactly the same people here that we had 30 years ago and nobody else, that's a dead church. We should be a church that is growing and changing. Read through the book of Acts. It seems like every chapter and the word of God was going forth and and the Lord added many more to their number. Being hospitable means having a significant care and concern and love as much as is possible for the whole church as a unit. That's the beauty of preaching because it's caring for all of you simultaneously in exactly the same way. There's a second qualification we could put under the category of inclusive love. This is found in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders. This is not difficult to understand. This is speaking of those outside the church, the unbelievers in the community. Now, we want to be very precise here. This is not speaking of trying to please unbelievers. 
you can't please unbelievers because we live in two different kingdoms. You live in the kingdom of light, they live in the kingdom of darkness. What it is speaking of is living a life that's consistent with the faith that you claim to hold. Living a life that's consistent with the Christ that you claim to serve. So that generally speaking, in normal, everyday interactions, your faith should drive you to act in kindness and graciousness, fairness, honesty, integrity, that the world generally should look at you and say, you know, I I don't understand your faith and I don't like a lot of things that you seem to stand for, but I cannot argue with your life. You're just a great person to be around. You're kind, you're, you're giving, you're a good neighbor and so forth. It means that the only offense that you should cause to the unbeliever is the offense of Christ. Romans 9.33, he's called the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Because yes, when you call people out on their sin, when you call them to repent, their self-righteous, totally depraved sin nature views this with arrogance and offense, unless, of course, the Holy Spirit regenerates them to see the truth. But in normal daily conduct, the leader of the church should never be one who has a reputation of godliness inside the church, but not outside. I, every interaction I have with anybody in our community I know that in God's sense of humor, if I am rude to that person, they're going to be sitting on the fifth row on Sunday morning. And if they look at me and make a face and walk out because of something I did, I don't blame them. For all of you as leaders out in the community, every person you interact with may potentially be a guest in need of the gospel in this church. And so you, you just let that be a, a, an overriding influence That we are kind to outsiders. We're well thought of by outsiders. We're not the ones that irritate and frustrate people out in the community, but we're the ones who are patient and who are kind. Paul was very concerned for the life witness of believers to those outside the church. 1 Corinthians 10.32, he said, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't offend anybody if if at all possible. Colossians 4, 5, he said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. In other words, it's a good use of your time to walk wisely in your dealings with the lost. 1 Thessalonians 4, 12, he said, walk properly before outsiders. 1 Timothy 5, 14, he says, give the adversary no occasion for slander. In other words, give the devil no way to say, you know, it's funny what you say you believe in the church because that's not how you act outside of it. 1 Timothy 6.1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, as slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Here's the reason, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You're not inconsistent. In Titus 2 verse 5, wives are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Here's the reason that the word of God may not be reviled. That the Christian woman isn't mocked for living a life that's different than the faith she claims to believe. Titus 2.8, Paul tells us to exhibit sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Wouldn't that be a great question that you should be able to ask the lost person that you've been sharing the gospel with? I've been sharing the gospel with you and, and you keep rejecting this. How about this? Have you seen anything in my life that is inconsistent with the faith that I say. And if you're living a life that's consistent, they will honestly be able to say, no, actually, I really don't. I have to give that much to you. 
And so it is a, it's a platform. In fact, Titus 2.10 says that our lives, listen to this, are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Your life is a decoration that demonstrates the gospel. In Titus 3.2, we're to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That goes for all of us as believers, right? We understand that. But how much worse, how much potential damage can the two-faced elder create where he's one person in the church and another one out in the community? Verse 7 says that he could fall into disgrace, which is the snare of the devil. He wants to disqualify leaders. You ruin leadership, you ruin a church. You ruin the reputation of a leader, you ruin the reputation of a church. And I have heard this over my years in the ministry. I've heard people say, I would go to so and such and such church. I think it's a good church, except this guy is an elder there. And so, no, I won't go there. That's sad. And so we want to have an inclusive love. That brings us to a fifth category. Remember, we started with number four today. Fifth category we'll call a heavenly focus. A heavenly focus. What does it mean to have a heavenly focus? Well, it's to be clear that while we are to live an excellent life now, this man's overall focus is heavenly. He lives in light of eternity. He can hardly wait for eternal things. And this is such an important example for us to have in the church, isn't it? That heaven and looking beyond our circumstances is the key to Christian living. Did you catch that? Heaven and looking beyond our circumstances is the key to Christian living. That's, that's everything. But if you don't have examples of that sort of thinking, that sort of perspective, then the whole church suffers. If all of your elders are preaching that if only the Republican Party could do better in the next uh, election, earth would be fine, then that's what the church will believe. Instead, we need elders that are heavenly in their focus. We'll put two more qualifications under this category of heavenly focus. They're both stated in the negative. The first one, verse 3, he is not a drunkard. He is not a drunkard. A drunkard literally means addicted to wine. This is someone who is in love with the pleasures of this world as represented by alcoholic beverages and being, being addicted to them who thinks he has to have certain pleasures, who thinks he deserves certain pleasures, up to and including the pleasure of drinking to the point of excess. Now, obviously, we always have to touch on this. Are we free in Christ to drink alcoholic beverages? Sure, there's no admonition against that. But for the leader of the Church of Jesus Christ, he can't even look like a drunkard. He can't even appear that way. On our eldership here in this church, we, we don't have rules about this, but all of us have informally agreed that we don't drink alcoholic beverages. And that's for two reasons. The first one is to not cause offense needlessly. To not cause offense needlessly. Obviously, leaders can't avoid everything in life that might be offensive. We don't stop wearing the color blue because one of you was robbed by somebody wearing blue. Uh, we, we can't do that with everybody but many people associate regular drinking with worldliness and excess. So the question for us as leaders is, why push freedom in Christ simply because I can? Why, why do that? Yes, I as your pastor am free to drink alcoholic beverages if I wanted to. But let me ask you this. Would you feel comfortable if you happened to see my car parked at a bar? Or would you feel comfortable if you walked into a restaurant and you saw me at a table with two empty wine bottles right there? 
you would have some discomfort. So to not cause offense needlessly, it's, it's easy. And it's amazing. I've been able to survive 54 years on iced tea. It's amazing. It's all right. But much more importantly, the second reason that we've made this kind of informal decision is that God calls leaders to a higher standard. He just does. He calls leaders to a higher standard. In the ancient Near East, the drinking of wine was a regular thing and it wasn't nearly as potent as the wine that we have today. Wine was a way, frankly, to drink clean liquid that wasn't contaminated or polluted and culturally was completely acceptable from children on up. So I found it very interesting and instructive that when some young, bright Israelite men were brought captive to Babylon in 605 B.C. to be trained for leadership, these young men were given the best food and wine of the land. Much of the food, though, would violate the law of Moses. And so these young men, led by a young man named Daniel, asked to be given only vegetables and water. Now, this is a very odd request given the normalcy of wine drinking in that day. But why did they do this? Because they took leadership seriously and they never wanted to even be close to being intoxicated. In fact, there's another precedent for this in the Old Testament. This was exactly the same advice that King Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, gave to him using his nickname, Lemuel. She said in Proverbs 31, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Here's an easy way to remember this. What's the legal drinking age? Say it out loud. 21. Proverbs 20, verse 1. <laughs> says, wine is a mocker. Strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 21. See, the heavenly-minded leader never wants to be impaired in his judgment at all. He needs to be heavenly-minded instead. The second way to demonstrate being heavenly-minded, verse 3, he is not a lover of money. He's not a lover of money. Literally in Greek, silver is not his friend. Silver is not his friend. He doesn't find meaning in money. He doesn't find his worth in money. Now, obviously, money is necessary for life. By the way, being a lover of money has nothing to do with how much of it you have. You can be a lover of money and have none of it because you think it will make you happy. And you can have countless oodles of money and not love it. And so both are possible. Why is this so important that he's not a lover of money? First Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And the love of money causes traps and snares and they're all over the place in the previous verse paul warned but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction with those with larger amounts of money paul gives good medicine to keep from loving money his medicine is give a lot of it away First Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves, listen to this, as a good foundation for the future, 
so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Did you catch that? A good foundation for the future. They're heavenly-minded. They have a heavenly focus. Once there was a group of Christian real estate investors, and they were in a meeting planning a giant commercial building project, and they began to disagree pretty heavily over some of the details of this giant multi-million dollar project. And during the meeting, one of them started chuckling rather uncomfortably, kind of like ruining the whole somber mood of the meeting. He just started kind of giggling a little bit. And he got the attention of the others, and they finally were like, what's going on? And he told them, you do realize, guys, that all this is going to burn anyway, right? That no matter what decision we make, it's probably going to get nailed with hailstones and earthquakes and fire before Christ returns. And the chuckles of one man turned into the chuckles of all of them until they were all laughing. Their perspective had returned. They didn't love that project. It was just a means to provide for their family at that point. For the elder who falls into the trap of love of money, this can cause so much distortion of perspective. And here's the dangerous part is that you don't know what's happening until you see the consequences of it. It causes distortion It can cause a sense of entitlement that if I'm a generous giver or I have a large bank account, then my voice becomes more important. Is that a qualification of an elder? It's not. It can cause someone to work to the detriment of their family in the ministry that I need to work these 90 hours a week and I'm going to to put off my duties as an elder because I need to make more. It can cause a slow slide into looking down on those with less than you. I was a part of a church once where one of the elders, a godly, godly man, was a janitor. But he fit all the qualifications of an elder and he was good for the rest of the eldership because he was a humble, humble man. Ironically, it is the volunteer elders who determine the pay that vocational elders are to receive. And volunteer elders with a love of money, it causes stinginess, not generosity. Because they transfer that love of money, you ready for this, over to the church. That the church must be secure. We must have so much money in the bank just in case something happens. You know, I wonder if that's uh, the attitude that the apostles had. Which one of the apostles, which one of the disciples was the one that felt they should keep most of the money? Judas. What are you going to do with it? You're supposed to spend it on the work of the ministry. It has many pitfalls. And so he must have a heavenly focus. An elder with a heavenly focus, and I do believe our elders have a heavenly focus, says, you know, the Lord has blessed us with so much. He's blessed me with so much, but it's, it's all his, and whatever he does with it is his business. And we just say, easy come, easy go, and it's okay. The elders, they have an inclusive love, a heavenly focus. Let's do one more category today. We'll call this one a seasoned wisdom. A seasoned wisdom. Now, I want to be abundantly clear right up front with this. A seasoned wisdom is not the ability to take your life experience and bring it to the table. Experience is never, ever the determiner of doctrine. It is never, ever the determiner of ecclesiology. Personal anecdotes, personal experience, these illustrate truths. They do not determine truth. Seasoned wisdom speaks of having the knowledge to apply the Bible to the needs of the church. That's seasoned wisdom. And we could identify two more qualifications that indicate a seasoned wisdom. First, in verse 2, he is to be self-controlled. He's to be self-controlled. This isn't speaking primarily of personal interactions. This isn't 
isn't speaking of his, his personable uh, way of, with people. That's covered in verse 3. He's not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. This word self-controlled speaks of being prudent, of being thoughtful, of being responsible. There isn't a hot-headedness as a pattern. Actions aren't taken based on continual, spontaneous thought. But most importantly, the self-control comes into an elder's thinking when he forces himself, when he compels himself, when he insists from himself that he think biblically. That's his work ethic as an elder. That is thinking as an elder, that his communications as an elder, that his priorities as an elder, that his counsel as an elder, and yes, his decisions as an elder are based in thinking scripturally, of taking the time and the effort to apply scripture to a specific situation. Why does that take self-control? It takes self-control because we're prone to use our experience and our personal views. We're prone to look in the mirror and see gray hair and believe that innately makes our opinion more valuable. It becomes easier and we're more familiar with our personal experience and we tend to be in our sin nature as the hero of our own personal stories. And so the leader is to compel himself to continually ask, how am I applying specific scriptural principles to this situation? And next time we'll revisit the necessity of knowing how to form a biblical argument. But seasoned wisdom doesn't just mean having some life experience. It means being seasoned in the scriptures and being able to make your case for whatever you're doing as a shepherd based in the scriptures. There's a second qualification we would put under the category of seasoned wisdom. In verse 2 also, he is to be respectable. He is to be respectable. Literally, he's to be appropriate. What does this mean? Well, it's a word related to the word for world. And so it means basically he's to have a well-ordered world. I'll put it in ways that we can understand. He has his life together. He has his life together. His life isn't characterized by randomness and chaos. His life is ordered under the larger mission of serving as a leader in the church. His marriage isn't crumbling. He isn't making people nervous because he can't get things done on time. He's in control of his life. This is one of the reasons we always tell our our pastors, and when I have the chance to speak to other young pastors, we talk about the wisdom that there is only one person who controls your life and your schedule. That's you. You can't take what everyone else wants you to do and do that. You have to do what you know you need to do because everyone has vastly different priorities for your life uh, than you do. And so it has to come from one source. Now, we all understand that life is complex and that sometimes things happen outside of our control. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, there are seasons of greater difficulty. But if the difficulty is chronic and it's caused by lack of organization or lack of proper priorities or laziness, then the qualification of respectable isn't being fully realized. The writer of Hebrews made this clear when he commands the church in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Respectable means that a leader is living a life that the other men in the church can copy. He can ask you questions. Hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? Tell me why, why your marriage seems so wonderful. How do you manage your money? How do you take care of your schedule how do you parent your children i want to do those things they're living a life worth imitating and 
And listen, men, you know this instinctively. For you as men in particular, we thrive on example, don't we? We thrive on example. We thrive on observing the lives of godly men and emulating their lives. I happily and eagerly invite you anytime. Now, I didn't tell them I was going to tell you this. But I happily, eagerly invite you to ask any of our elders, what is something important to you for ordering your life? Why is your life well ordered? Tell me how you do that. They should all be able to answer that, and I know that they can. Every one of them will be a wealth of wisdom. And so our fourth, fifth, and sixth categories of qualifications, an inclusive love, a heavenly focus, a seasoned wisdom. I'd like to take the rest of our time to shift gears slightly, but not really. Because in the sovereignty of God today, I have the privilege of continuing to to have preached on the qualifications of an elder. And in just a few minutes, the elders of Grace Bible Church will be officially ordaining David Papillon as a fully qualified minister of the gospel. Now, you might be saying, hang on, he's been here for years. Wasn't he qualified before? (laughs) Why did you bring him here? Was it just his tall, handsome, good looks? No. Ordination, the recognition by a local church that a man is fully qualified for the gospel ministry, this takes time. It takes a lot of time. And there are basically three elements to ordination. There is training, testing, and approval. Training has happened. Pastor David is a graduate of the Master's Seminary, and he's been mentored here at Grace uh, by myself and by others since arriving here. The testing has happened in two ways. First of all, we've, put, uh, we, we've had several years to observe David's ministry and watch the results of his ministry, and you cannot argue with results. And second way we've done testing is we put him through theological and pastoral written testing, followed by a long interview where we threw spontaneous questions at him and we didn't tell them what they were in advance. Because you, you don't want to go visit your doctor and tell him, uh, can I send you an email in advance so you can look up how to treat me? You kind of want him to know already. The approval part is happening today. But first, I want to speak to you, to the church, and then I want to speak to David and to all aspiring vocational shepherds and all of our current leaders as well, because it applies to all of us. First, I want to speak to you as the church. The church that values and appreciates your pastors is giving evidence of health and vitality. That's just a a fact. The vocational shepherd has given up other dreams in life. He hasn't pursued things that might give personal satisfaction or gratification or, or certainly make more money than one ought to make in the gospel ministry. Now, to be very clear, the vocational pastor loves the work of the ministry, but it's a love placed there by Christ, and it's a love that will most definitely have cost to it. Being the one to stand publicly for the gospel has a cost. He is the face of blame for hatred of the gospel. Being the one to stand up to sin in a church member has a cost. He's the face of blame for the vitriol of those who respond sinfully to correction. Being the one to live a life that is an example has a cost. The standard is higher for him. For the vocational shepherd, sermons don't happen magically. Every week, there's a wrestling with the word of God under the constant scrutiny of the intense responsibility to get it right. There is the 
constant interpretive decisions being made in dozens of hours of study and reading and compound that with the knowledge that there is no possible way that the preacher will get it right every time. He has to develop and grow in knowledge according to 1 Timothy 4.15 to let your growth be evident to all. There's the weight of knowing from Hebrews 13, 17 that he will give an account to God for the sheep he has shepherded. And the scary part is that we're not told what that looks like. You're just going to give an account, but we're not going to tell you what that looks like, when or how. There's the interesting dynamic of never having a finish line. You're never done shepherding. You never know when you're done. I've never once received an email or a phone call from a church member saying, just so you know, my sanctification was complete yesterday. Thank you so much. I intend to live a perfect life from now on. And because of this, the admonition from Acts 6 that prayer must be a major part of the ministry is very important. An effective minister of the gospel prays while studying. He prays while counseling. He prays while planning. He has to be on a short leash with God. He has to be on a short leash with God, continually checking in. Prayer should be almost like breathing, asking for wisdom and for help. Compound that with the cultural degradation and condemnation that pastors statistically are seeing on the same level as used car salesmen by our culture. But to ordain a minister of the gospel is the culmination of years and years of sacrifice, of training, of countless thousands of hours of, of reading, of studying the Bible at a level that most will never even come close to, of devoting himself to a genuine love for the church which may or may not always reciprocate that love. A minister of the gospel is a missionary no matter what country he's in. He doesn't move to where the weather is nice or whether his family is closer or how clean the air is. He doesn't move to where the schools are better or where the political environment is better. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but that's not our criteria. The minister of the gospel goes where God calls him to go. And nothing and no place is off the table. He is dead to himself and alive to God's will for his life. He ministers for a lifetime with the full knowledge that statistically many pastors who retire after decades of service in the same church are asked to leave so that they won't impede the ministry of the next guy. Now I know this is a little bit unusual, but David, I'm going to talk to you for a minute. This will probably never happen again in front of everybody. But I have a final set of admonitions for you and for all who aspire to vocational pastoral ministry and to all of our current and future leaders. So it's not just for him. It's for all who would aspire to leadership. Top of the list, you must never let anything take precedence over the study of God's word. You can't do that. Your best friends cannot be church members. For the sake of the church, your best friends must be Moses and Ezra and Nehemiah, and David, and Asaph, and the sons of Korah, and Ethan, and Heman, and Solomon, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Hosea, and Joel, and Amos, and Obadiah, and Jonah, and Micah, and Nahum, and Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi. Your best friends must be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, and James, Peter, Jude, all of them must be your best friends. You must know them better than you know even the church members. You must preach like every sermon is your last one. You must preach, as Richard Baxter said, as a dying man to dying men. You are to be like a batter who knocks the cover off the ball 
You're to be like a pitcher who throws heat. You're to be like a fighter pilot who protects the weak and fires theological missiles at the lies of Satan. You must preach theologically. You must revisit the doctrines of grace all the time. You must do the work of an evangelist. You must be willing to stand alone if necessary for the central truths of our faith. Whoever agrees with you is irrelevant. You must agree with the word of God. You must speak the truth in love and let the chips fall wherever they may You must never preach or teach to please people, but instead to benefit people. You must never try to make the Bible palatable when it must cut to the heart, nor should you make it harsh where it comforts and delights the heart. You must never stop learning, never stop growing, never stop seeking the knowledge of God. You must be enamored with the bride of Christ. You must love the church with your whole heart, These are the chosen ones of the Savior. These are the ones that will be perfected in heaven. You must see to their spiritual needs. You should have a drive and a yearning like a father does for his children to feed them and to protect them and to guide them and to counsel them. You should be broken with love for God's people. They are not a means to an end. They are the end. They are not a means to a higher purpose. They are the higher purpose. Your deepest ambition should be like Paul with the Galatians In Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You must be faithful to make certain that the church is the church, meaning there are qualified elders, that the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table are always kept, that church discipline is given when necessary, no matter how painful, and that the word of God is taught as the highest priority of the ministry. You must never succumb to worldly means of attracting people but let Christ grow his church through the faithful preaching of the word. You must stay true to what you have been taught. Never be original. Never add new doctrine to your wheelhouse, but stay true to the ancient truths. You must remember that the sheep in your care will never progress beyond your devotion to Christ and beyond your knowledge of the word and that the sheep in your care will in many ways become like you. So be worthy of that charge. And whether we're talking about with our student ministry or whether the Lord gives you a church of your own someday or preaching to our church, you are to bring the light of the truth and the heat of the glory of God to every message. Every sermon has to be pierced and penetrating your own heart until you're bleeding on the pulpit the might and power of God which has gone through your own veins you must stay true all of your days because the purpose of the church never changes to Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And speaking of Christ, Christ must be exalted. Christ must be preached. Christ must be your focal point. Christ must be present in every message you preach. Christ must be the head and the supreme sovereign over you and over the church. You are a shepherd, small s, and we serve the shepherd, capital S. You must approach the pulpit of Christ's church with the humility of an inadequate slave, yet project the authority of an elder of the bride of Christ. You must approach the pulpit of Christ's church with a simultaneous fear and trembling mixed with fearlessness and courage. You must fear God always and never fear man, even in the church. You must serve rich, healthy, delicious spiritual meals that are full of biblical vitamins and minerals and nourish and thrill the people of God. 
Now, by God's sovereign uh, plan, when I took off last week, since my brain was fried after preaching the book of Revelation, our family watched David preach. Brother, you lit the pulpit on fire. And we praise God for you. I'm going to give you one more. I want to give you a quote from Ignatius, what he told Polycarp. He said, The ship of the church is tossed to and fro on the ocean of the world. It is a critical moment, a tempestuous season. You must be both its helmsman and its haven, must guide its course and afford it a shelter. So will it arrive at God, its destined goal. So I'd like to call David up here and call the elders of our church, and we're going to make this official. Come on up, David. I'm going to push this aside. We're going to uh, follow a tradition of old, and that is that, uh, yes, we have our own uh, strongman here. So (laughs) we're going to follow a tradition of old, and we are going to uh, ask David to kneel. We're going to lay hands on him, and I'm going to ask that uh, that Grant and Mark, if you two would say a short prayer uh, into the microphone, and then we'll present a certificate of ordination to David. but uh, you don't get it yet because we haven't prayed over you yet. So, <laughs> David, we want to ask you to kneel before the people that you are serving. <clears throat> Let me go first, Grant. Lord God, you have greatly blessed this church. You have given us a humble man who loves you, who loves your word, who loves your church. It's been evident, as Steve has already prayed, already stated, that uh, David loves you, and he desires and has proven that his love for this church and his love for you will be part of the rest of his life. And, And use this moment, even now, in the sobriety of it, for him to recognize the the long-term effects this is for the rest of his life. Keep him pure, keep him straight, keep him pursuing you. May the gates of hell not prevail against him. We know with your power, they won't. Continue to use him in this church, use him beyond these walls, use him where you desire. But most of all, May your glory shine through what you are doing in his life and the way that you've brought him here and his family. Thank you for them and their support. Thank you for such a blessing as this, and and may we be a faithful church to him, a church that supports and loves and responds to our pastors as they preach the word to us, as they bring it to us in many different ways, the wisdom that you've given them, the work that they put into it, may we reciprocate by obedience. And may that cause more and more people to love you and glory to be given to your name. It's in that name we pray. Our Father, it is a joy to to affirm David as one who is called to preach the word, to, to rightly divide it and teach us 
we have witnessed that in, in our church here for several years now, and and it is a joy to take part in this uh, this morning. Uh, we have all been blessed by his teaching and will continue to be blessed by his teaching. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for his salvation and that he was called to the ministry and he has honored that calling. And we pray that uh, he will continue to walk the worthy walk of one who has been called to, to preach the gospel, to, to teach the sheep, to shepherd uh, the flock that you have given him, as we have already witnessed. And we praise the Lord for that, and we will continue to praise you for that, and continue to pray for him, as we do for all our pastors, that you will greatly enrich them as they prepare and study every week with, uh, with great pains, and that, uh, uh, that we will all be blessed, and that they will be blessed by their preparation and teaching as we are. We thank you for David and his family and this time that we have to, to affirm him as, as uh, ordained as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, before you get up, David, keep you down for one more second. We're going to present this to you because when you get up, you are fully qualified. We, the undersigned, hereby certify that David James Papillon, having been tested, trained, and approved according to biblical requirements, has been set apart and called as a minister of the gospel by the elders of Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield on this 26th day of September 2021. All right, brother, get up. Let's, let, let's pray together for a moment and then we'll sing. You guys can be seated if you want. Thank you, Father, for this time. Oh, how glorious it is. Because statistically, Lord, we know that you have always used a few men to impact thousands. When Jesus was on earth, he did not choose 12 million or 12,000 or 1,200. He chose 12. And with a few men, the book of Acts says they turned the world upside down. That is the power of the word of God, proclaimed by a man of God, empowered by the spirit of God. And so, Lord, I pray for David. I pray, I thank you for the impact he's had in our church already. Uh, Young people hearing the gospel consistently, being taught and discipled, coming to faith in Christ. We look forward to many, many more years of fruitfulness from his ministry, wherever you would have him, Lord. We ask you to bless him and that decades from now, he would look back at this moment and remember that this is when he was approved. Lord, I pray that the fruit that is born from the words of his mouth and the efforts of his life would be overwhelming and that we would all rejoice in heaven as we see the throngs gathered together that are a result of the faithfulness of just one man. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.